Matthew 18. We're going to start in verse 21 today. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. denarii. And seizing, seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Uh, let's have one more quick word of prayer. Ask God's blessing on his word. Lord, these are your words today. God, and they pierce through our pride. Lord, and I, I pray if they haven't yet that they would this morning. Spirit, may you have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the, the kids already raise their hands in confession. So let's just, you know, do that as a, a whole group this morning. How many of you all have sinned against someone else? Everybody's hand is up. Okay, just getting that out of the way. Make sure we're all on the same playing field here. Uh, this may be a familiar text to us. That's a familiar thought, if nothing else. And th- the temptation is here just to kind of run past this. Okay, forgive other people. I get it. I know. Let's move on. Um, I think, you know, as, as an expositor of the text is what I'm called to do here. As just good students of the Bible, we should just wait a second, slow down, pause, and let the Spirit speak in this this morning. So we're going to hang out on these verses, and we're going to kind of um, flesh out, talk through what this means and how this looks in our own lives today. And we notice from the beginning how this starts. It's with Peter again. Here he goes. Um, Remember what we just talked about, right? Darren just preached last Sunday. Um, This this is how you love one another in the church. And last week we talked about church discipline. When someone sins, what do you do? Will you go to them? And we talked about that process last week. Right after that, Peter comes to Jesus and he kind of sticks his foot in his mouth. He's going back to his old ways. And he thinks he's probably better than he should. And and he asked Jesus this question. And just some background on this. In, in, in those days, rabbis of the time taught that you would forgive someone three times. And then you didn't have to forgive them anymore. So Peter comes to Jesus knowing this. And he says, Jesus, what if, how many times am I supposed to forgive a brother? Is it seven times? Seven, Jesus? Could, could I do it seven times? You know, he's, you know, you can kind of just imagine this, this air of confidence and arrogance in his, the way that he asked this question. Um, it seems to me, in thinking about this further, that he's still hung up a little bit, at least, on trying to be the greatest in the kingdom. Right? Because they were asking this question at the beginning of the chapter and Jesus tried to set them straight. Peter still is learning as we all are. I mean, really, this is a reflection of our own hearts. Today, we say, God, look how good I am. Aren't I good? Look how spiritual I am. Aren't I spiritual? Peter's saying, 
should I forgive him seven times, God? That's over twice as much as I need to. He's wanting a loophole, Liz said. Maybe that's true. I don't know. But I love, I love Jesus' response because it's, it's kind of classic Jesus, isn't it? He either answers a question with a question or he, he answers the question in a way that they did not expect. They got way more than they bargained for. And so this is what, this is what happens. So Peter says, seven times, Lord? I mean, is it three times? Is it seven times? Nope. Jesus says, 70 times 7. Some of your, verse, your versions say 77 times. Um, I don't know that this specific number is what's important. However, we did talk about math this morning. So kids, what's 70 times 7? Caden says 490, gold star, buddy. I don't have one to give you, but just imagine it. It's, it's awesome. It's very shiny. Um, 490 times. I, again, I don't think the number is what's important. Think about uh, how many of you guys have been to a wedding this year, this this season. Uh, raise your hand. I didn't see them. Okay, at that wedding, did they talk from 1 Corinthians 13? Wedding photographer is shaking her head, saying yes. You probably heard that a lot, right? Uh, you guys know that chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. And it goes on. That's a good, that's a good passage to read at uh, a wedding. Um, however, if we consider the context of that, that's in the same context as Matthew 18. Paul is writing to the church on how we treat one another. That's the context of those verses. And so in chapter 13, Paul's talking to Christians on how to love each other. And he says, love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. That's important, that last line. And I love how the NIV says that. It says, love keeps no records of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. So it's not the number of how many times we forgive someone that's important here because we're not supposed to keep a record, you guys. Jesus was, uh, in saying 70 times 7, he was using exaggeration as a teaching tool. And he goes right into an extreme form of this in this next parable that he lays out with the, the servants. Uh, this, this parable is, I think, I hope, it's pretty self-explanatory, right? There's not a whole lot that we can change or dig into, um, but we can sure apply it in a lot of ways. But I want us to remember the context again. Jesus is still talking about how the church should function. He's talking to believers here. More specifically, he's still talking about how we deal with one another's sin. How do we deal with one another's sin? So we read the parable together. What's the point? Well, as simply as I can put it, it's this. Forgive others as the Father has forgiven you. That's easy, right? Forgive others as the Father has given you. No problem, God. Easy peasy. We're good. We know better, right? Um... If you've been wronged, mistreated, misrepresented, hurt, abused, it's, it's real easy just to forgive and forget, right? No. It's not. That's just how it is. Um, that actually is a big problem for us. Each one of us. And the reality is, the Bible, what we see here, Jesus is not saying, this is easy, this is just simple, it's natural, that's not what scripture teaches. It's not natural to forgive, but the Bible does teach that it's Christian to forgive. It's Christian to forgive. Jesus is saying that if you're a Christian, if you're really following Christ, if you're really dying to yourself daily, you will forgive. Period. There's not another option. And not only individually, but this kind of forgiveness should characterize the church, you and me, us together, the universal 
church. This should characterize us. Guys, the truth is the world knows bitterness and revenge and unforgiveness, don't they? I mean, I'd even venture to say that the world has embraced it. Think about, think about the, the TV shows that are popular now. Think about the movies that are out now. So many of them are based on getting even, revenge, plotting evil against other people. The world knows this kind of behavior, unforgiveness. And yet, the church, literally, we, it, it means ecclesia, it means called out ones. What are we called out from? The world. So if we're called out from the world, we are not to look like the world, are we? We're called to be different. Look, this was the point, this is at least part of the point, of so many of those Old Testament laws and rules and regulations. It was so that the nation of Israel looked different than everybody else. They did things God's way, and it was different, and they were set apart because of it. So if, think about this with me, if bitterness and unforgiveness are the climate of our culture, and the church is literally people who are supposed to be called out of that culture, then how can we continue behaving like the world does? We cannot. We can't behave like the world does. How can we look at our brothers and sisters and be okay with holding a grudge? How can we be okay with being cold and uncaring and distant? How can we think nothing of backbiting and gossiping and tearing down? Church, this cannot be the way. It can't be. And it's not the way. Jesus just said so. It's Christian to forgive. You will forgive. If you claim the name of Christ and yet are refusing to forgive a brother or sister, the text says at the end that you will be dealt with harshly by a righteous judge. You will be. And if a person refuses to forgive... Or I think if they content, are content to live with bitterness or holding a grudge against another Christian, that tells me at least two things about that person. Number one, the first thing that it tells me about that person is I don't think they understand the weight of their own sin. If, if someone refuses to forgive, I really have to believe that they don't understand the weight of their own sin. Because what that means is, if you refuse to forgive, forgive, you're saying that the other person that hurt you, that their sin is worse than yours, and therefore they're unworthy of forgiveness. It means that you've never, I mean, you may never have thought about it this way, but it means that choosing to not forgive is you elevating yourself above that other person. You're saying, I'm better than you. I deserve forgiveness from God but you don't deserve forgiveness from me. That's what we're saying when we refuse to forgive someone else. Guess what this is at its core? Pride. It's pride. Because we value ourselves above someone else. It's pride. Hopefully, if you've been at this church and heard preaching for any length of time, hopefully you've heard the truth about sin and if you haven't heard it from us preaching at you about it, hopefully you've read it from Scripture yourself. Sin separates you from a relationship with God. It does. It separates you. It is a barrier. Even one sin, James tells us, even one mistake, and you're guilty of it all, guilty of breaking it all, the smallest thing you can think of still is you breaking God's law. Breaking God's law, what does that earn you? book of Romans tells us that it earns us the penalty of death. The penalty of death. Even one sin earns us the penalty of death. Why? Because God is a holy God. God is a righteous God. He cannot tolerate sin. Were he to tolerate sin, he would cease to be God. And so because he cannot tolerate sin, sinners have no part of him. If you continue thinking your sin isn't that bad, 
I firmly believe that you cannot be saved and you will not grow in your faith. You can't be saved. If you think that your sin is okay, then you are diminishing the purpose of Christ on the cross and rejecting his sacrifice as atonement for your sin. You can't be saved. If, if sin is not a big deal to you, if your sin is not a big deal to you, you can't be saved. Now, there is a direct correlation, I believe, between how we view our own sin and how we view God. If I view my sin as not a big deal, then conversely, the holiness of God can't be a big deal. Okay? But if I see God as totally holy, as totally righteous, then I'm going to be, un- I'm going to begin to understand the depth of His grace to me when He chose to crush His own Son instead of me. But when we see our sin for what it is, when we see our sin for truly for what it is, I think that's when we start forgiving other people. That's when we can truly begin to forgive other people the way that Jesus says to. And this leads me into the second thing. If someone refuses to forgive or is okay, content with holding a grudge, it tells me that they don't really understand grace. I mean, look back at our text. Verse 32 and 33. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Guys, we forgive because he forgave us. We can't truly forgive if we've not really been forgiven by the Father first. We show mercy to others because of the mercy that God has shown to us. Can you look back on your life and and recognize this? Can you see moments when you have just blown it and yet God has forgiven you? Continue to call him, call you his child? When we sit in that, when we recognize that, that motivates us, that gives us the ability to go and to forgive the offenses of others against us. I forgive an offense from my brother or sister because of all the offenses that God has forgiven me of. Uh, my, f- my mom has a big family. Um, she's got five brothers and five sisters. So she's one of 11. So... With all of those aunts and uncles, uh, I have a lot of cousins. Um, Get-togethers with my mom's family are loud. It's a little bit crazy, actually, if you want to just kind of come right out with it. Um, But it's it's taught me a lesson, and here's why. Uh, When I was younger, uh, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, um, somewhere in there, I would, we would be at my mom's side doing stuff with the family and my cousins would be there and we would be playing together. Now, if you were in this situation, you know, when you've got a lot of cousins and we had, there were a lot of boy cousins, a lot of cousins, things start to get a little, you know, we start to wrestle a little bit, start to throw things at one another, all in good fun, but it still kind of gets a little bit crazy and inevitably, Somebody would get hurt. Okay? Some of you are laughing like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, somebody would get hurt. Now, sometimes I was the one that got hurt, but most of the time, I was the one that hurt someone. I had a lot of younger cousins. Um, when that happened, I had a choice. Uh, deal with the consequences or try to fix it fast. So, of course, in, in my thinking, uh, fixing it fast is the better alternative. And so I would do everything that I could. I would do my best to try to get my little cousin to stop crying before they could alert an adult, right? So I'm running interference. I'm trying to get in, in between them. And for whatever reason, I, don't, I still don't really understand it, but I, I thought that if I inflicted pain on myself that that would make up for the pain that I inflicted on them. And so between 
them, between the incident and them alerting an adult, you know, I would do something to try to hurt myself. I would, you know, slack myself in the face and try to get it. Did anyone else do that as a kid or am I just really weird? Okay. All right. I accept it. I'm just really weird. That's all right. Um, I have, it must be hereditary. Uh, so, so I would try to inflict pain on myself so that greater pain wasn't inflicted upon me by, by someone else, right? So even, uh, but even, this, this is my point. Even at a really young age, I understood that this concept that sin is a debt, right? Sin is a debt. Uh, I wanted to pay that debt off quickly and cheaply, um, but I understood that sin is a debt. Jesus relates it here this way in the parable in Matthew 18 when he's talking about this debt that these servants owed to the, to the master. It's a monetary debt. And each of these servants had a debt that they could not pay. There was, there was no way. And, um, some of your study Bibles, you could look up kind of how much each person's debt was. Um, I've heard a wide variety of the amounts of what that is. I don't know that that's necessarily super important for the text. Just know that the one who was forgiven his debt was astronomical. And the one who didn't have their debt forgiven was minimal, especially in comparison. Okay? So these servants had debts they could not pay. Guys, the truth of the matter is you have a debt that you can't pay. I have a debt that I cannot pay on my own. If you're human, you have a sin problem. And if you have a sin problem, you have a God problem. Now we think, and oftentimes we tell people, especially little kids, that sin is the biggest issue and, you know, you've got to get past yourself and you've got to, you know, you're, you're your own worst enemy kind of thing. The Bible doesn't really teach that. The Bible teaches us that God is the judge. And so if, if, if anybody's our enemy, if we don't have Christ, God is our enemy. If we have a sin problem, we have a God problem. And yet God is holy and he's right to punish sin, isn't he? Isn't God right to do that? Well, if God's right to punish sin and sin is in us, then it follows that God is right to punish sinners. And if he's completely holy, he's right to separate us from him. So where does that leave us? Guys, that's not good news as it is right there. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. And so I hope you're hearing this today. The magnificent, the unbelievable, the amazing, the every other adjective that you could think of, the wonderful thing is that God made a way for sinners to be brought near to him again by paying the debt we could not pay through Christ on the cross. Amen. And that's the joy of the gospel. What he required for payment of sin, he provided. Thanks be to God. Guys, if you've never had your sins forgiven, if you've never had your debt wiped away, you have to know that Christ's death on the cross paid everything necessary for you to have a personal relationship with God. Fully paid, fully sufficient for you to be reconciled with God. No one, no one is beyond his payment. No one owes more than what he could offer. And when we cry out, when you cry out to God for salvation through his son Jesus, he immediately and permanently wipes away your sin debt, places you in his family, and gives you his spirit for the rest of your days. That is a beautiful picture of all we give God is our brokenness, isn't it? We don't have anything else to give. We give him our brokenness and he replaces that with his son, with Christ, the righteousness of Jesus. If you 
Ask God to wipe out your sin debt and desire to follow Christ. It's our desire as a church to know that so that we can come alongside of you, disciple you, encourage you, um, help keep you accountable, and you can keep us accountable, and we can work together. I love how Darren said last week that Christians in this, we're just we're all brothers and sisters on our journey to the Father. That's what it is. And in that journey, we interact with one another, and we love one another, and we keep each other accountable, and we spur one another on to good works, Scripture says. But it's true that Christ has paid our debt before the Father, but what about and this is where the rubber hits the road, if you will. What about when somebody else sins against me? What about when somebody hurts you? If, if I asked you to, I guarantee you, you could probably even just from this past week, think of someone who's done that, who's had an impact on you in that way. Someone who has hurt you. That, that's the reality of life. I, I wish I could say it was better or different, but, but this is it. Um, so what do we do? When someone wrongs us, first off, we feel like they owe us a debt, don't we? When, when somebody wrongs us, just like we've been talking about, we feel like they owe us something. Um, there's an article by a guy named Timothy Keller. There's a few copies of it back on the, the counter back there, but it's called Serving Each Other Through Forgiveness and Reconciliation. It's been extremely helpful for me in this context and I'd encourage you guys to, to look over it. But um, a couple of the things that he said in there I want to share with you. Because they, they just, in a sense, they broke me on this. Um, in it, he says, right at the beginning, he says, On both a theological and a practical level, forgiveness is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. True forgiveness comes at a cost and is pursued intentionally within a community of believers. Just Think about that for a second. When someone wrongs you, there's a very real sense that they, they owe you a debt. They, they owe you something. If you've ever been hurt, you've ever been wronged, you understand that feeling. Um, sometimes we make them pay that debt back by uh, hurting them back, by yelling at them, by making them feel bad in some way. Or maybe just kind of watching and waiting and secretly hoping that bad things happen to them. Now, I know none of you ever would do that sort of thing. But maybe me. Um, Keller, who wrote that article, he uses the example of a lamp. Okay, so follow with me here. He says, imagine that I have a $50 lamp and you break it. Okay, you're my friend, but you break my lamp that costs $50. Okay, now... Uh, it takes $50 to replace that lamp. So if you break my lamp and you say, right, I want to pay you back, I'll say, okay, it costs 50 bucks. So you incurred a debt of $50, you paid it back, and I have a lamp. And we're square. We're even. That debt has been paid. Um, but just say you break my lamp, and I just say, hey, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I forgive you. Uh, my lamp isn't magically fixed because I forgive someone. Um, I don't magically have 50 extra dollars in my wallet or my bank account. So how is that debt paid? If sin is a debt and the lamp being broken is the debt here in this scenario, and I've forgiven my brother or sister who broke my lamp, how is that repaid? Well, when you forgive, when I forgive that debt... I absorb it, I eat it, basically. You guys understand that concept? I eat that $50 myself. I absorb the debt. I make the payment for the lamp myself. So I'll either pay the 50 bucks to get a new lamp, or I'll choose to have a dark room. It's my choice. But I, I have forgiven that debt. Um, here's something else that he says. In this article, he says to forgive is to cancel a debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. Someone always pays every debt. This was really helpful for me. Someone always pays every debt. When you're sinned against, you lose something, perhaps happiness, reputation, peace of mind, a relationship, an opportunity. There are two things to do about a sin. 
So imagine someone has hurt your reputation. You can try and restore it by paying the other person back, voicing public criticism, or by ruining his or her reputation. Or you can forgive the one who wronged you, refuse payback, and absorb the damage to your reputation that you'll have to rebuild over time. In all cases, when wrong is done, there is a debt, and there is no way to deal with it without suffering. Either you make the perpetrator suffer for it, or you forgive and suffer for it yourself. Those are your options. Make them pay, or pay for it myself. Think of the forgiveness now extended by the Father. It came with suffering, didn't it? On the cross, we see God forgiving, but that was only possible through the suffering of Christ. On the cross, God's love satisfied His own justice by suffering, paying the debt for our sin. Guys, there's never forgiveness without blood, sweat, thorns, nails. How do we forgive? How do we really do this? Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to absorb the debt that everyone has made against us. It's too difficult, isn't it? It's too hard. I mean, even still, even if we might have the ability to do that, sometimes we just don't want to, do we? I won't ask you to and embarrass you, but I bet we would all raise our hands again if I asked, was there ever a time in your life where you just did not want to forgive someone, where you refused to forgive? We'd probably all raise our hands, myself included. We like having power over people, don't we? And that's what it is. We're holding that over their head, elevating ourselves above them when we say we refuse to, to forgive. Now, in, in that place, in that place, that's bitterness, like a poison in our bones, the Bible says. It's not healthy physically, spiritually, mentally, at all. But, you know, it's true. Some of us like doing that. Some of us like keeping other people in, that, in, our, in our own little prison where we can continue to judge them and feel justified about our bitterness. Now, I know I'm, I'm cutting deep here, but this is true of me sometimes. And I, so I, I just assume maybe that it's true of you. We like keeping people in our own little prison so we can torture them in our own minds and feel justified about our anger and our bitterness. And that's wrong. That is sin. Only, here's the truth. The way of the person following Jesus is not this way. It's to forgive. It's to forgive. Here's the truth. God expects you to forgive others, but not based on your own goodness of heart, based on his. More often than not, we probably would prefer to remain in bitterness and anger. And yet, when we remember the sin debt that God canceled on our behalf, it ought to spur us and compel us to look at our brothers and sisters and clear the air. Only a relationship with Jesus and the Spirit living inside you can enable you to live like this, though. Only the Spirit living in you. We forgive because He forgave us. We show mercy to others because of the mercy that God has shown us. We cancel the debts of others because God has canceled our debt on the cross. Every single one. Keller simplifies it a bit more by putting it this way. This is the last time I'll quote him, but it's a great article. You should read it. But he says this. Christians in community are to never give up on one another, never give up on a relationship, and never write off another believer. We must never tired, I'm sorry, we must never tire of forgiving and repenting and seeking to repair our relationships. Guys, if we think back to the book of Matthew just by itself, we found out in chapter 5, in verses 23 through 26, Jesus tells us that if, if there is something between us and a brother, if... Um, 
if a brother has something against us that we know of, we leave our offering and we go work it out before we go to the Lord. Right? If we know someone else has an, has offense against us, we go to them. Matthew 18, the verses we looked at last week, teach us Jesus is now saying that if we have something against them, if they have sinned and we see that against them, then we should go to them. So whether they have something against me or I have something against them, what are we supposed to do? Go to them. Jesus does not say, go to your pastor and complain about the person. Now, there may be a time when it gets to the point where that needs to happen, but first off, that's not what the Bible says. Jesus says, go to them. Church member, go to them. If you know that there is a problem that they have with you, go to them. If you have a problem with them, go to them. Okay, I lied about quoting Timothy Keller. I have one more. Thank you for forgiving me. <laughs> oh, thank you, Mickey. In short, this, this was probably the, the thing that impacted me most about what he wrote. He said, in short, if any relationship has cooled off or is weakened in any way, it's always your move. It doesn't matter who started it. God always holds you responsible to reach out and repair a tattered relationship. A Christian is responsible to begin the process of reconciliation, regardless of how the distance or the alienation began. Guys, if you claim the name of Christ and there is bitterness in your heart, it's your move today, right now. It is your move. Jesus has made it clear that to follow him is to forgive. And this is because we're a part of the new covenant, a new community that functions differently than the world. Christians carry the spirit of Christ himself. This makes us different. So as I'm wrapping it up here, I want to draw our attention back to the whole of the book of Matthew or the chapter of Matthew 18. Um, what did, what did Jesus do right at the beginning of the chapter? What did he do um, with his teaching? The disciples said, hey, who's the greatest? What did Jesus do? He grabbed a kid and he set it down in the middle of him and he started talking to him about him. He says, guys, you want to be the greatest? Here's how. He told us Followers, that they had to humble themselves like a little child in order to be part of his kingdom. So kids, you've been talking with Pastor Jason. We've come up and we have reviewed week after week about what the different chapters and parts of them are. So Matthew 18 as a whole, what does it deal with? Yeah, Emery. Church discipline. Good. So we hear that word and it's like a... Not a, not a good thing. Um, but church discipline doesn't always happen by a church excommunicating a member. 99% of church discipline happens between you guys and us without every, without anybody even knowing. It's, it's formative discipline in a sense where this right here, you are being warned and disciplined to forgive, to not hold bitterness. This is church discipline in a sense right here. Church discipline is a good thing. It protects the flock from one another, from the world. It displays the glory of God to everyone else because of how we're different. This chapter covers how children of the king are supposed to treat one another in God's kingdom. I mentioned that several weeks ago when we started the chapter. This is how children of the king are supposed to treat one another in God's kingdom. So, question for you guys. Uh, raise your hand if you have siblings. That's a, if you have brothers or sisters. A lot of us in here do. So a few only only children, but um, most of us have siblings. When you were little, did your parents ever teach you how to treat your brother or sister? Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, 
Did they instruct you on how to handle conflict? Did they teach you how to deal with a sibling who isn't acting right? Did your parents ever teach you that you need to forgive your brother or your sister? Did they ever teach you how to correctly ask a brother or sister how to forgive you? Ask them to forgive you? Uh, Hopefully, your parents taught you these things. And this illustrates my, my point that Matthew 18 are basic principles for how a family operates. Think about this for a second. These are basic principles for how a family operates. Jesus is teaching children of the king how to treat their brothers and sisters, how to treat their siblings. And he used a kid as an example for this, I think because it's not complicated. It's not supposed to be confusing. Even a child can understand these things. That's why we teach our children about forgiveness, about following Christ. So what are these basic principles? This is really interesting to me. Number one, Jesus taught us kids to not lead our siblings into trouble, right? So from the very first, from verses one through six, remember the millstone and the ocean idea, don't cause one of these little ones to to stumble. And remember, little ones, children was Christians, okay? So he says, hey, in my family, in the family of God as a Christian, Don't lead your siblings into trouble. Secondly, number two, Jesus taught us kids how to stay out of trouble ourselves. Verses 7 through 9 talk about that, right? If your hand causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, get rid of it. That was an extreme example of saying sometimes drastic measures have to be taken to kill sin in your life. So Jesus is teaching to stay out of trouble ourselves. Thirdly, In verses 10 through 14, Jesus taught kids how to go find a brother or sister who is missing. Remember Pastor Jason talked about this, how people are far more important than numbers on a list. And we're to go find our brothers and sisters when they're straying from the fold of God. We're to go find them and bring them in, bring them back. Leave the 99 to find the one, it says. Uh, Fourthly, verses 15 through 20 that Darren preached on last week, Jesus taught us kids how to deal with a sibling who's already in trouble. Right? If we see a brother or sister who's already in sin, we're to go to them and start that process of reconciliation and pray and humble ourselves. I loved how Darren put it last week. He said, if at any point in that process you find that your motivation is not love and reconciliation, stop. I'd never thought about it that way before. That's good. But Jesus taught us kids how to deal with a sibling, a brother or sister who's already in trouble. And then lastly from today, Jesus taught us kids how to really genuinely forgive one another. These these are basic principles for how a family operates. And we're a family. Like it or not, we're a family. Right? Right? Paul uses the analogy of the body and he says, guys, the hand can't say to the eye, I don't need you. Right? The foot can't say to the mouth, I don't need you. We need one another. But we can't continue operating like the world operates where we harbor bitterness and we're okay with holding a grudge. We're okay with distant, cold relationships. That's not okay. In the body of Christ. We're called to be different. Jesus says the way of the Christian is to forgive. And I think, and I think the, the, the key word for us adults, especially in the room, was found in Matthew 18, verse 4. Look at it again with me. It says, Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If, if you say you're really humble, Well, you're really not. And every one of us struggle with this. And that's why I think this is the key. Humility. If we go in arrogance, we're going in the wrong spirit, in the wrong motivation. And so we go in humility. Jesus says, guys, you want to be the greatest? You want to be seen as a mature Christian? Humble yourself. Serve other people. 
Jesus lived this way. Jesus taught this way. Paul taught this way. And I want to finish by turning to Romans chapter 12 together. So turn in your Bible. Hope you've got a word. Romans chapter 12. Chapter 12, starting with verse 9. And again, this is in the context of writing to the church, explaining how Christians are to behave. Many of your subject title headings in your Bible says these are marks of a true Christian. Verse 9, chapter 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Or arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live it peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. You want to know the easiest way for a church to be overcome with evil? Refuse to forgive. Refuse to forgive someone. If we have a church full of people who are mad at each other and who refuse to forgive one another, we are being overcome with evil. That's how it's going to happen. But I don't think, I don't think that's what any of us want for our church. I really believe that. I don't think we want to be overcome with evil, evil. I don't think we want to harbor bitterness against a brother or sister. I don't think any of us aspire to be prideful or caring or vengeful even. But you know what? Sometimes it happens. This is the reality of being with other human beings. We're going to sin against one another. It's going to happen. Guys, the truth is, sometimes we get hurt and we don't respond the way that we should. Sometimes we hurt someone else and we have trouble correctly asking for forgiveness. I really believe, though, the desire of each of our hearts is to really love each other as Jesus instructs us to. I believe that. I look out at your faces today, and I believe that about every one of you. We really want to follow Jesus. If it's our desire to build up the church and really follow him, guys, we will submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture and live out what Jesus is teaching us here in Matthew 18. We will do it. If we want to build up the church, the the truth is sometimes families blow it and hurt one another. It happens. We've, We've seen it here. We're not perfect and we won't be until Christ returns, but that is absolutely not an excuse to remain in bitterness and unforgiveness. Not when Jesus says the things to us that he said today. How will we respond? That's the question that we leave today in our hearts. How will we respond now knowing Jesus' instructions to us? Will we forgive and absorb the debt ourselves? Or will we refuse to forgive and require from our brother or sister something that God doesn't require from us? May God show us the reality of our own sin. 
and give us the grace to continually and regularly extend forgiveness to our brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts sometimes don't want this. As we've already said, Lord, sometimes our hearts are okay and content and even happy to to harbor bitterness and to be all right with unforgiveness. God, may it not be so going forward. We're your people. And so, because of that, we are called to be different. The world knows vengeance, Lord. You know, you've seen it from the beginning. The world knows bitterness and unforgiveness. Make your people at Ramsey Creek different. May may we be eager to clear the air. May we run to our brothers and sisters to ask forgiveness and to show forgiveness. God, we cannot do this on our own. Your spirit in us can only be what prompts us to have this kind of attitude to give us the grace to go and to humble ourselves. I pray that we would not ignore the call of your spirit. And even now, even this morning, as we sing the song that reminds us of all that you have paid on our behalf, Lord, I I pray that we would We would stop and we would think of brothers or sisters who we need to reconcile with and that we would go to them and that you would be glorified in how our church loves one another and how our church forgives one another. As you've forgiven us, Lord, may we go and forgive one another. In Christ's name we pray, amen.